Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is coming from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and this is the ESV version. Paul is speaking here. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. We're concluding today a really short series that I've called Gospel Politics, How to Recover After an Election Year. If you're a member or a regular attender of our church, your elders wrote a letter on politics and emailed it to you about two months ago. If you haven't read that letter, I encourage you to read it. If you can't find it, reach out to me and I will send it to you. The reason we sent you that letter and the reason I'm preaching this brief series, although it makes us uncomfortable, is because I think politics really have become like sexuality. If you're a parent, you know that if you don't teach your kids about certain things, they're going to learn about them from the wrong sources. They're going to get all of that from the world. And I've come to the opinion that if the church doesn't, at least in some sense, talk about politics in a safe way, as Christians, we're only going to get that from the world. And so that's what we're doing for three Sundays, and we're wrapping it up today. And I, I, you know, I said two weeks ago, I'm not claiming to have any special insight, any new knowledge on how to navigate this tense climate in our society. What I'm trying to do for three weeks is just draw us together. I'm just trying to draw us back together by remembering timeless truths that we can apply, that any Christians can apply anywhere at any time. And what we first discovered was that Jesus wants us to put God first, above our politics, not to fit him into our politics, but to subordinate our politics under, beneath, less important than his vision for humanity and human society. Secondly, we learned that based on Daniel's example and the apostles in the New Testament, that Christians should think more like exiles than natives in any political climate, especially our own. Putting God first, devoted to Him, ultimately, we think like exiles, not like natives in our own political climate. Lastly, today, I want to start by asking you a question. What might it take for diverse American Christians to move towards, to work towards unity in such a polarized climate, political and social climate? What would it take for Christians in America to work towards unity? My premise today is to say we begin working towards unity with a confession that we haven't worked toward it. We haven't worked towards Christian unity. We've worked towards other types of unity, sometimes political unity with other Christians or other people of faith. Sometimes we work towards denominational or doctrinal unity or organizational 
unity. You know, pick your charity, pick your organization to work with because they agree with your, your fundamental premise or, or your cause. And, and some of us have worked towards racial unity, but I don't think we have worked towards Christian unity as a priority. And I think the year 2020 has only highlighted what has always been true, that we find much to disagree about and much to divide over. But I, what, I, what I hope you're going to see today from Ephesians chapter 4 is that Christian unity must outweigh the pursuit of all other types of unity. And I wrestled with saying whether or not I should say that and put that up. But I really think after prayer meditation and this passage, it comes down to that. Christian unity must outweigh the pursuit of all other types of unity, even well-worthy causes for unity. And I want to talk about this in three ways. First, the unity that God gives us already, that is already given us, and the unity that God calls us to practice regularly. And finally, the unity that God Himself sacrificed for us. The unity that God gives, the unity that God commands, and the unity that God gave up. Now, the unity that God has already given to us is really the background to what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4. He opens up in today's passage in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, with this statement, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a matter worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The therefore in that statement, the word therefore is really important. It refers back to all of the previous parts of the letter. It refers to Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3. Therefore, okay? And what is highlighted in Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3 is the grace of God to resurrect spiritually dead people and give them life as a gift of His grace alone, not because of anything they've done, but what He chose to do for them. Those three chapters highlight the grace of God and something else that's very important, the reconciling power of the cross to bring people together who were formerly enemies. For instance, perhaps the most important passage in the first three chapters for our purposes in understanding these six verses today are Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, where Paul had said, Christ Himself is our peace, who has made both Jews and Gentiles, that's a big deal, Jews and Gentiles one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul said he did this so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul said it's through Him, through Jesus, that we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is a Jew raised and taught and bred as a Pharisee, saying to both Jews and Gentiles, Jesus, in His death, has made us one and has given us both access to one spirit, through, one spirit to the Father. 
That's what therefore is referring back to. Therefore, he goes on to say, as a prisoner for the Lord. And this is a phrase he uses several times in his prison letters. The letter to the Ephesians was one of the letters he wrote in prison in Rome around 60 A.D. So when he, when he says that, I as a prisoner of the Lord am telling you to do something, he's really leaning into his chains. Right? He's saying pay attention to the guy that's in prison for his faith. A prisoner of the Lord, he's reminding them that he is suffering for something that he believed is so critically important, and it's this, that Jews and Gentiles keep reading the letter of the Ephesians and look at the letter to the Colossians and the letter to the Galatians and the letter to the, to the Philippians, and what you see again and again is he's saying this, that Jews and Gentiles, that men and women, wives and husbands, parents and children, even slaves and masters were against the common wisdom of his age and the mentality and the customs of the Mediterranean world and the history of its various peoples, he's saying despite all of that, the gospel has made you all equal. In the eyes of God, all of these, all of these different types of, of conflicting relationships, you're all equal in the Lord. Their cultural and ethnic and economic and gender-based dividing walls had been torn down, Paul was saying. To put it the way uh, Robert Frost, one of my favorite poets, puts it, something there is that doesn't love a wall that wants it down. And what Paul is saying is that in Christianity, the thing that wants the wall down is the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. He's telling them, he's reminding them that the same God is now the Father of those who would otherwise be adversaries in this world. And so Paul is saying, now in order to be worthy of this calling, in order to live in a way that is worthy of the calling you've already been given through Jesus Christ, you've got to rebuild. In order to live up to this new identity that we have been given, Paul says we must rebuild what the world has already broken. And, th and this rebuilding toward unity has to take place in several ways as we demonstrate and practice various qualities of the Christian life. First, he says in verse 2, we do this, we rebuild towards unity with all humility and gentleness. Now, while it's true that the ancient Greeks and Romans sometimes did praise gentleness, or meekness is another word for it, humility was out. The ancients, uh, outside of the Hebrews, uh, the ancients in the West did not, they did not look up to humility. It was a shameful thing to be a humble person. They frowned on humility. It wasn't a virtue in the Western world until Christianity came along. It was Jesus of Nazareth who made humility a virtue. And Paul's saying here, meekness and humility, gentleness and humility are paramount. Most recently, actually just a month ago, it was the civil rights leader uh, and activist, John Perkins, a strongly committed Christian here in America, who was interviewed by World Magazine, and he said this about the current climate in America today. He remembered the, the passage from Galatians, the, the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, 
And he went on to say, it's pretty hard to find this quality on display today. Our culture applauds people who are brash and arrogant. The self-promoter gets the most attention and the most encouragement. But God intends for His friends to be marked by gentleness. Not only humility and gentleness, but also, Paul says, he goes on, with patience we are to rebuild what the world has broken in our relationships. John Stott said the Greek word here for patience, it really means long-suffering towards aggravating people. I love that. Patience is not just the way you act with the people you like and love and who are nice to you. Patience is dealing with aggravating people again and again and again. Another scholar put it this way, the Greek word there for patience means slowness in avenging wrong or retaliating when hurt by another. Oh, but Paul says more. Keep going. Patience and, he says, bearing with one another in love. Now there, bearing with somebody, in the original language, the concept is of the word to bear with somebody. It means to put up with them. That doesn't sound very good. How many times do you say, oh, I love so-and-so, I put up with them? No, no, you're like, I can't stand so-and-so, I put up with them. And that's what the word meant. To put up with somebody, it even can mean in certain contexts to accept a complaint, to be willing to receive a complaint that somebody or a group of people have against you. You see what's happening here? Now, once again, John Stott, he says this word, bearing with somebody, it means mutual tolerance. Mutual tolerance, right? Tolerance doesn't just work, work one way. It means we tolerate one another. Opposing sides tolerate each other. And so you see what Paul is doing here. Gentleness, humility, patience, putting up with one another. He find, he, he's telling us to rebuild unity in the relationships that the world has broken. We're all coming to Jesus with a history of brokenness. Whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, whether you're white or black or Asian or something else, we're all coming into our faith family with broken ideals, broken relationships, bruised stories and histories. And Paul is saying in all of these difficult ways that we've got to rebuild all the brokenness that we're coming into this heavenly family with. And the reason, Paul says, that we take every painful effort to do this, to make peace, is because of what's coming in the next few verses. But before we get there, there's another wonderful verse, verse 3, that odd but wonderful expression. He says, and you've got to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the word there, eager, it meant to be zealous about something. It meant to take pains to see it happen. It meant, it meant to make every effort to see it done and to be conscientious about it. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace is what we're supposed to be passionate about, Paul is saying. And what does that phrase mean? To maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, quite simply, it means peacemaking. The way we maintain the unity that Christ accomplished on the cross practically is we act like 
peacemakers with humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance, we are most passionate about peacemaking. And Paul says the reason for taking every painful effort to be a peacemaker as a Christian with other Christians, regardless of what the differences and divides in the history is, is verses 4 through 6, which is uh, probably one of the earliest, if not the earliest, recorded Christian creed. He says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is the foundation. This is the reason that Paul says you make every effort to live at peace with one another. He says it's because the same God is Father over us, the same Spirit indwells each of us, the Holy Spirit, because the same Lord, Jesus Christ, died for all of us. John Stott uses the illustration of biological families. He says, you know, a biological family, uh, mother, father, children, let's say they become estranged through divorce and sibling rivalries and say the, the mom and dad break up and then the siblings grow up to dislike one another and fight and, and, and compete against one another and, and the whole family becomes estranged. Well, John Stott said, that wouldn't negate the blood connection of the family. Dis despite the regardless of the divorce, regardless of the sibling estrangement, they would not cease to be biologically a family. In the same way, though the visible church is vastly divided, God's people in His eyes remain a family. That's what Paul is calling believers back to. And that heavenly reality becomes our motivation to resist the tendency to divide over the littlest thing and even over big things. And that is why the New Testament calls Christians to painstakingly pursue unity. Not when it suits us, not when it's easy or convenient, but when it costs you everything, pursue unity. Maybe more so than pursuing theology or evangelism or missions or social justice or healthy politics. I know, I know all of that sacred stuff to you. And I'm sure because I said one of those things, I'm going to get an email from somebody. But listen, think about it. None of those things will grow effectively without unity. None of them are possible on a broad scale, long term, without unity. A house divided against itself cannot stand, right? What does verse 3 say? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of politics? Through the bond of social justice? Through the bond of theology? Even Reformed theology, it doesn't say that. It says we keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because there is nothing that better appreciates and promotes the Christian message than reconciliation. The mundane, 
but glorious habits of confessing our sins to one another, repenting of our sinful attitudes and behaviors, and forgiving one another. This is the most boring thing in the world, but it is essential, the most essential thing in the world, as Jesus himself said in John 13. It is by this that all people will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. What, what is loving one another more than practicing peace? So my challenge to you, my challenge to you, to all of us, at the end of this three weeks, is to seek a passion, to seek a passion for Christian unity that outweighs your personal passions, as just and righteous as they may be. Seek a passion for a Christian unity that is greater. My friend and former colleague, Erwin Ince, who who has done a lot in recent years to help our own denomination move forward in the process of racial reconciliation. In his very recent book, The Beautiful Community, talks about how churches uh, must seek ethnic and racial healing and move towards the very difficult thing, but possible thing, of reconciliation. And at one point in the book, he talks about how we all kind of tend to exist in our own ghettos when it comes to worship and faith and religion. And what he means by ghettos is that you worship and serve in an environment where most people think and look like and act like you and have similar stories and, 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 and stories of suffering uh, as you do. And in that context, he writes, we must realize that getting out of our ghettos isn't free. It'll cost you. And listen to this. He says, you'll have to re-examine your preferences. If you're part of the majority culture, he says, you'll have to learn, and most of us are a part of the majority culture in this context. If you're a part of the majority culture, you'll have to learn how to listen to and learn under the influence of non-majority culture people. If you're part of the minority culture, you'll need to learn how to trust majority culture folks, especially if your corporate collective history is covered in wounds. Make no mistake, he writes, getting out of the ghetto is uncomfortable, but it's close to God's heart. And I think a way of summarizing what Erwin Ince writes here is, is to quote the Getty hymn, which we're going to sing later today, to prefer one another. There's that phrase we sing, to prefer one another. And I think that's the point he's trying to make, and I think it's what Paul is basically trying to say. It's really not that hard to comprehend. He's saying, prefer one another. Prefer one another more than what you prefer. I've seen this again and again. I used to be a director of music for years, and my goodness, the way people would fight over styles of music. They would put their preferences above their fellowship and unity. But, but the more and more time I spend in ministry, we do that with everything. I mean, music's the simp that, you know, music and worship style, it's nothing compared to politics and social issues and personal conflicts with one another. And what Paul is saying is here, prefer one another more than 
what you each prefer. Now, I know that several people who are listening online, and I'm glad that you're with us, uh, some of you may just be you know, fishing around, looking around the internet, and I'm glad that you're here. Um, let me just say something. If, if you have left your church, or you have left the church, the organized church, or you're considering leaving this one over political issues, or racial issues, or social issues, or personal conflicts, let me say something. I grieve with you. I grieve with you over the failures of the church and its sins. And I long with you for the healing and the purity and the unity of the church. But friend, you are giving up. You are copping out. And you are not painstakingly pursuing the unity that Paul commands us to pursue in Ephesians chapter 4. You have painstakingly pursued your preferences. As legitimate and important as they are, you care about them deeply because God has shown you that they are important issues. But to break with the fellowship of the visible church is against the advice, the command that Paul urges us to practice. And you had better find, I say this lovingly and respectfully, you had better find a way, a way to sacrifice whatever unity or solidarity or oneness is clouding the grace of God in your perspective, in your life, in your politics, in your ideas and agenda. You must either reject it entirely or more likely, for most of us, you must wisely and carefully subordinate it under the gospel of grace. Because Ephesians has shown us that the grace of God is the only thing that unites sinners. The only thing. By grace you have been saved, and this is not of yourselves, not of works, so that no one should boast. It is the gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It is the only thing, the gift of God to love you and give Himself from you, for you and bring you into His family. It is the only thing that unites sinners who are enemies in this world. So that has to remain at the top of the agenda. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, Life Together, it is not the experience of Christian brotherhood that holds us together. Now he wasn't saying that Christian experience is unimportant. It's very important. But it's not the glue. It's not the power. He went on to say that God has acted and wants to act upon us all. This we see in faith as God's greatest gift. And he went on to say we are bound together by faith, not by experience. It is not our shared preferences. It is not any similar agenda. It is not even our shared stories of suffering and hurt that ultimately unites us. Any homogeneous church, 
any homogeneous Christian organization, any homogeneous group of Christians, whether they're friends or they work together or they worship together, whatever, any homogeneous body that wants to call itself Christian, especially when what unifies it are politics or social agendas, will be narrow-minded, will become judgmental, and ultimately exclusive because it will have denied, maybe unknowingly, but definitely denied the grace of God. Again, to use the, the words of Robert Frost, before I built a wall, I'd asked to know what I was walling in or walling out and to whom I was like to give offense. We develop our political passions and often don't think, who in the church am I alienating? But there is a perfect unity. All the types of unities that you work towards in this world are imperfect. But there is a perfect unity that God Himself sacrificed to reunite us to Him and to reunite us with one another. Father, Son, and Spirit in all eternity shared a perfect joy and unity that Jesus gave up to save us. The night before he was executed in his high priestly prayer, which is recorded for us in John chapter 17, in that beautiful prayer, he said, he said that for everyone that was ever going to believe in him based on the message of his apostles, he said, Father, I ask that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is why unity is so important because there is ultimately no other way that the world believes that Jesus was sent by God and that we have been sent by Jesus unless we are one. In His death, Jesus, who cried out to God on the cross, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? The same Jesus who the night before had prayed, Father, may they be one as You and I are one, then said the next day on a cross, Father, why have You forsaken Me? We see what was going on. That Jesus preferred us over the perfect unity that He shared with His heavenly Father and with the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean that He liked us more than He liked His heavenly Father, but that He put our needs above His own joy. And that is what Paul is telling us to do, to put the needs of others above our own joy. And the result is, you get more joy anyway. So now you prefer, you put up with, you tolerate, you forgive the people you don't want to. That's what it means to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Don't think that that means anything less than learning how to put up with and tolerate people you don't want to put up with and tolerate. And learn to love them as God in Christ has loved you. And we will never achieve perfect unity now and in this life. But as Paul shows us, 
the Christian is called to painstakingly pursue it as a reflection of the unity that already exists in heaven. Let it be done on earth, Father, as it is in heaven. Well, we practice, we practice practically the unity that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And what we will discover is that what actually fulfilled Jesus' prayer for unity is not our own peacemaking, but His. Christian unity must outweigh the pursuit of all other types of unity. So seek a passion for Christian unity that outweighs your personal passions. And I'm going to close with Mark Dever's words in his book, God in Politics, where he said, we can pray for wisdom in political matters, but we must allow for differences in partisanship. We resist identifying the gospel with any particular nation or any political party, and we look forward to the day when we are done with all of that and God again rules us immediately and fallible earthly authority is no more. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You. Thank You that Jesus is not like us. Thank You that we worship a God and can tell one another about a God and can tell our neighbors about a God who is not like what they see in us. Nonetheless, help us to become like Him. Help us to receive one another as He received us. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. And Father, while we are yet pains in each other's neck, thorns in each other's sides, may we prefer one another more passionately than we prefer what we prefer. In His name, Jesus Christ. Amen.